On this episode, the crew's new RV breaks down on its first trip, the Giants finally win, and everyone has a hard time understanding why Spock is trying to save their butts. I'm Captain Awesome. And I'm the Tribble Hippie. Welcome aboard, take a station and find something to hold on to. There are no seatbelts on the bridge. Hey everybody, welcome to No Seatbelts. This week we're going to be discussing not the first six, but the Galileo 7. <laughs> uh, first aired January 5th, 1967. This episode's pretty awesome. It's super weird, but pretty awesome. This is a fun episode. So this is the one where uh, Spock is going to lead a team from the Enterprise on the shuttlecraft Galileo Woo-woo. on a quote, ill-fated mission (laughs) Uh, where he's going to face tough decisions when the shuttle crashes on a planet populated by aggressive giants, (laughs) which are the worst kind, right? Nobody, you never land on a a planet where they're like, you know, nice giants. That's why like uh, Futurama, they land and and all the giants are like, snoo, snoo, gotta have snoo, snoo. I will rub him and hug him and I will call him George. (laughs) Oh, so man. this episode is written by uh, Oliver Crawford, uh, pardon me, Oliver Crawford. And this is going to be the first of three Trek episodes he's going to write. He's also going to write the season three episodes of the cloud minders and let that be your last battlefield. Um, it's kind of funny because both of those episodes are kind of loaded with social commentary and this one, not as much, not as such. <laughs> Um, he was an accomplished TV writer who started to work in the early fifties and wrote uh, comedy mysteries, Westerns, outer limits, love American style, uh, wrote two episodes of Mannix. So, Hey, we got the Mannix connection there mm, and Mannix. an episode of here come the brides. So we got the Mark Whoa, Leonard Mannix and here come the brides. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We got the two for, all right. <laughs> um, the last writing credit you had was a screenplay and novel called the execution, which when I looked at this, I need to go back and watch this. Loretta Swit, Jessica Walters, Valerie Harper, among others, are a Mahjong club who recognize a local, I believe, laundromat owner who used to be a Nazi in the uh, Nazi guard in the camp, that concentration camp that they grew up in, and they decide Whoa. they're going to kill him. I wow. Really, I really want to watch this. Mahjong sometime. Club hunts Nazis. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, early in his career, uh, he was uh, signed a major contract with Burt Lancaster. However, the contract did not go through because he was called before McCarthy's Un- uh, Un-American Activities Committee. And because he refused to name some of the communist sympathizers, he was blacklisted. Man. Uh, yeah. Weird time. Yeah, so he did, well, he, hold on. It's coming. <laughs> he moved to New York for a time and he got what work he could. But then a friend of his was working on Playhouse 90 and brought him back to TV in 1957. And after that, his career really took off. He received several Emmy nominations for his work over the years. And he would go on to serve on the board of directors for the Writers Guild of America for 26 years as well serve as an associate professor at Loyola Loyola Marymount. Um, He unfortunately did pass away in 2008, but he had quite the career. Uh, Now, helping write this one is 
surprisingly enough, not Gene Roddenberry. Uh, what? It's Gene gonna, didn't do a rewrite? Holy I could crap. not find any anything that said that Gene did a rewrite on this one. Gene must have been on vacation. That's the only <laughs> guess I have. Um, the uh, other writer on this was uh, Shimon Winselberg, who we covered in a previous episode, That Thing Will Rot Your Brain, which was the episode we did about Dagger of the Mind. Um, he was a guy who wrote and had over 100 either writing or co-writing credits uh, for scripts over his career. He often used a pen name Espar David, and he was known primarily for his ability to accurately portray, portray Jewish life in culture in television and film. Why he ended up working on this particular script, I have no idea. <laughs> right? That makes no sense. But, I mean, it did give us a chance to, once again, say the amazing name, Winselberg. <laughs> I, I just love saying it. <laughs> Now, the director was an interesting fellow. Uh, Robert Gist was the director. He was born in 1917 in Chicago and had kind of a troubled childhood. He was actually on his way to reform school for beating up and severely injuring another child. But instead, he was transferred to Chicago's Hull House, where he became interested in acting. Now, I, I looked up Hull House, and it was a settlement house, which I wasn't quite sure what that was. From what I gather, it was a social movement in the early 1900s where they would try to move poor people into more affluent neighborhoods so they would have access to school services and create more social interconnectedness between the classes. Um, yeah, it was it was definitely a, a one of those um, I, ideas that it was your surroundings that were causing all your problems. And so if you could just get yourself out of those surroundings, you have all the chances in the world. And it looks like Robert just really made the best of it. Um, he had a long run of the play Harvey on Broadway. Um, he appeared in movies such as Miracle on 34th Street, Strangers on a Train, uh, one of my favorite musicals, uh, The Bandwagon. And he was in the movie Operation Petticoat. And while he was in that movie, he mentioned to Blake Edwards he was interested in acting. And Edwards said, oh, yeah, well, I'm producing a show called Peter Gunn. And he allowed just to direct almost the entire first season of Peter Gunn with really uh, no previous I think Blake experience. Edwards was just tired. He was like, uh, do you want to direct for me? I got a thing. So, um, he actually became a, a, a acclaimed stage director as well. And he had a run of the uh, acclaimed play Conversation at Midnight, which ran in L.A., uh, he was married to Agnes Moorhead for five years. Whoa. Despite being 17 years younger than her. Whoa. And I love this thing. They got married in Yuma. I mean, <laughs> no, there's, I got nothing for that. Why would you go to Yuma? <laughs> you know what? Actually, you found out that was, there was something going on at that particular, particular time because I didn't bring the names with me, but there were at least two other like famous Hollywood couples that ended up getting married in Yuma for some reason. I wonder if it was like Palm Springs, that it was just one of those places in the middle of nowhere where people were like, yeah, let's build a palatial home here for next to nothing. <laughs> That's, that would be my guess. Right. And um, live in the getaway. desert. A quick getaway. That's before they all figure out it sucks living there. That's why nobody <laughs> lives there. Okay. To all my friends and family who are in Yuma, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. 
So just unfortunately did pass away in 1998 in Megalia, California. But when he passed away, he had 65 acting credits spanning from 1947 wow. to 1971 and 29 acting credits spanning from 1960 to 1985. So the guy had quite a life. From 60 to 85 was 29 directing credits or acting credits? Uh, directing credits. Wow. And figuring that Peter Gunn counted as only one of those directing credits. I mean, that was quite a. Oh, wow. So he just, he was a working director. He didn't care what it was. <laughs> he was going to direct it. Now, one of the interesting things about this story is that Oliver Crawford claimed that it was inspired by a B disaster movie called Five Came Back about a plane that um, crashed in the Amazon, I believe. And uh, the people were trying to, of course, escape the Amazon. But that movie had the distinction of not being a great movie, but a young actress named Lucille Ball was in it. And she was credited as being the high point of the film. And many people said this was really the thing that got her recognized. Oh yeah. It's considered as the thing that caused her career to take off, which is incredibly ironic considering she owns the studio. <laughs> so kind of got one of those things of here. It's like, you know, maybe, maybe you read it's like, maybe you write a script and hold it in front of her and go, Hey, does this remind you of anything? Wouldn't right. you like to shoot this script? <laughs> you know, it, 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 if you read through the plot of five came back, it is uh, astounding how close it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the, the plane crash. The, the pilot is going to sit there and try to fix the plane the whole time. They're going to be attacked by mysterious force. Like it's just, it's it's really on track and who knew that years later it would become the the basis of lost i mean you know (laughs) not really now it's a story as timeless as time (laughs) itself (laughs) one thing that was kind of cool is uh so this this episode does introduce the miniature of the this uh shuttlecraft galileo if i can actually get words out Um, now after this episode was filmed though, they never made any new shots of the miniature of the shuttlecraft. Uh, the, the shuttlecraft model shots that were used for the rest of the series were all stock footage that was filmed for this episode. Uh, they would make them with different backgrounds and stuff like that. But, uh, basically AMT agreed to build this model for them, uh, in, in, uh, exchange for the rights to build the plastic model to sell to consumers. And so it's probably why they didn't really build any more of these because it was kind of a contractual piece. (laughs) Just kind of a neat little thing. Now, the original design was a little more sleek and curvy that Matt Jeffries presented. Um, And the designers at AMT, uh, well, first of all, they looked at it and said, yeah, there's no way we're going to be able to build that thing with the budget you're giving us. There's just no way. Um, And so... Pardon me. The shuttlecraft was actually in the idea that came before the transporters. They were thinking, okay, we can't land the entire ship, but we'll have the mm-hmm. shuttlecraft. But even those shots were going to be way too expensive. So the transporter effect was brought in to kind of replace that or um, give an alternative to that. And it just became the alternative. Yep. Um, now in Enterprise, when we get to uh, Star Trek Enterprise, they'll kind of go back to that. They'll be using the shuttlecrafts because at that particular setting, they didn't really trust the um, transporters all that much. And so they kind of did a callback to that idea. Um, Makes sense. I mean, uh, at the time during Enterprise, they were using it for cargo. 
I'm not going <laughs> to jump on a cargo elevator and be like, yeah, no, no, it's, it's for people. It'll it's work. like jumping in the dumbwaiter. It's just not a good idea. Hey, if it could bring up your books, it right. can bring up you. So, uh, this one opens up on star date two, eight, two, one point five. Um, I don't think there's any significance to that. It was just what they said. It was a number. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the enterprise is, is heading towards a, a beautiful phenomenon. Uh, I don't know what it looked like. Cause all I've seen is the remaster. Um, I I'm sure that there's pictures out there. I probably should have looked it up. I didn't. I, I liked the remaster. It was pretty. The remaster was really good looking. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, and they opened up with one of the stars of the early season, an overhead shot of the bridge. I, <laughs> I still love that shot. It's so cool. It's a good way to start. Yeah. Uh, and so they're on their way to Marcus three with medical supplies and on their way, they pass Murasaki three, one, two, a quote quasar like formation. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> now I had to look this up cause I couldn't remember what a quasar was. And from my understanding, a quasar is a gravity well uh, surrounded generally by debris or a gaseous cloud. Um, as I understand it, for example, the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy would be considered a quasar-like, a quasar or quasar-like phenomenon. Well, technically that is kind of true, although officially there's, there's not considered to be any quasars in our galaxy. Um, if you consider the center piece as maybe a quasar, then you could dispute that I'm sure, but there aren't actually, there's no examples anywhere else in our galaxy of, of a quasar. We've only seen them outside. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> which was kind of funny cause they were like, Oh yeah, we were going to stop and see a quasar cause no one's ever seen one. Well, that's cause they're not here. <laughs> well, that does make more sense why they'd have to stop. Hey, should that thing really be there? Right. You know what? We should take a look at that. <laughs> exactly. They're like, man, that thing looks like it could have giants on it. Anyway, <laughs> Uh, and not only do we find a quasar, but we find a bureaucrat. Star Trek loves its bureaucrats. And in this case, it's going to be Ferris, yeah. um, played by John Crawford. Um, John Crawford is an actor. Many people would recognize he was born in 1920 in Colfax, Washington. Uh, he was discovered by a scouting agent while he was in the drama program at the university of Washington. Go Huskies. Hmm. Um, he failed his screen test when he went to LA, but he stayed in LA and worked as labor and carpenter and basically bent the ear of any producers. He he could uh, get access to, to cast him. And eventually he was signed on for some Western roles with uh, Warner brothers. Um, I remember him primarily as the mayor of San Francisco in two of the dirty, dirty Harry movies. Um, but he was also the chief engineer in the Poseidon Adventure, the original. Nice. Uh, he was in an episode of Mannix. Of course. <laughs> and he ended up having 255 acting credits in his IMDb profile. So the guy worked. Wow. 255. Yeah. My goodness. Um, sadly, he had a stroke just a couple of days after his 90th birthday in 2010 in Thousand Oaks or Newbury Park, depending on which website you look up his bio on. One thing I want to point out, the character's name is Ferris. Now, we've already done the episode, What Are Little Girls Made Of? And when Kirk goes through his list about uh, trying to make his point about you're nothing but a petty dictator, he lists off Hitler, a few other people, and then he hits Ferris. But then also, you know, it could have been shot out of order and Kirk was just making a joke by grouping a, you know, well-known galactic commissioner along with the, you know, 
That's possible. Number of <laughs> now was, it is, it is kind of interesting. Uh, so he is technically referred to as high commissioner. Um, <laughs> they refer to him in this episode as galactic high commissioner, uh, because we still have not named the Federation. Uh, this position will be referred to in other episodes as the Federation high commissioner. Uh, so I thought that was kind of weird. Um, I was like galactic high commissioner. Like that is a cool title, right? <laughs> that is a title that says not only am I kind of a badass, but, uh, man, I know red tape, <laughs> <laughs> but it has that kind of, when you say galactic and you're really only in one quadrant, it kind of has that whole miss universe thing to it. And I was like, <laughs> really miss universe. Cause we're only on one planet here. It right? seems kind of like. It seems you're maybe aiming above your station with what you're talking about there. He's got that name that says, I can get just about anything done for you, but it's going to take six months. So he's, uh, he's rocking an awesome outfit. He's got, <laughs> he's got the uh, Canadian tuxedo on. Hey, Hey, we oh. found out it's okay to say that. Uh, I don't know if it's actually denim. Cause it does look like curtains. If I'm being honest, um, it's got kind of that upholstery look to it. <laughs> Good point. Yes. Yes. But, uh, it's, he's not the only one who's going to wear it. We have to ask ourselves who wore it best. Was it him? Was it Garth and who gods, who gods would destroy? Or was it also the background actor wearing it in journey to battle? (laughs) Okay. So I, uh, I, I, somebody on some forum post, I went looking for this outfit and somebody on some forum post was like, so-and-so wore it on this episode. And if you look right after this point, you can see it. And I was like, what? So I went and looked. It is very, very obviously this outfit. (laughs) But the argument that ensued was funnier than finding it because the people were just, well, that's definitely not the same thing. He had a buckle that was right in this spot. Oh, it's missing all the gold roping and blah, 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 blah. Everybody went nuts. I don't know why, but this was a very heated argument for yeah they reused an outfit so what move on it was really bizarre so maybe this is just a real popular fashion it in <laughs> this particular time maybe it's like a tuxedo you know it's just like a regular formal outfit that people wear now one of the interesting things about this though that i thought was kind of cool is um right after he shows up they do a uh, a shot of the galileo turning around in the cargo bay. Oh yes. And on journey to Babel, right after that guy's on screen, they show a shot of the Galileo (laughs) spinning around on the turntable. It's the exact same shot reused, but it was funny that they were in such close proximity to each other in both episodes. Some, something about somebody wearing that outfit makes people want to get off the ship. (laughs) (laughs) I need a shuttle right now. So Ferris wastes no time establishing himself as the bothersome out of touch bureaucrat, which I believe TJ Hooker would refer this as somebody who doesn't know the score or the territory. Mm-hmm. And uh, Shatner really loves yelling at authority figures in his, his parts. Oh. Um, so it, it's one of the things that I, I see scenes like this. And I think I'm really sad that they never actually edit in in Star Trek, the motion picture, the meeting between Kirk and Nogura, where he basically goes in and gets the ship back because, you know, Shatner would have just, just nailed that scene. You know, would he though? Because I kind of felt like Nogura was his buddy in that scene. Like they were like, Hey, we've seen some stuff together. Right. Um, 
you're going to, you're going to just have to make this happen or I'm going to have to, you know, <laughs> tell your wife. <laughs> I mean, it, it just did not feel like, you know, oh yeah, I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you. No, that was totally, I have stuff on you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Be a shame if somebody were to get, you know, right? tell your wife about this stuff. Wouldn't you know what? You want That's somebody really to good... wreck your little ship now, would you? <laughs> oh man. So they, they determine that they have to do a rendezvous with supplies. That's, that's the whole reason that he's on the ship. Ferris is like, we, you got to do my job for me. You're, you're carrying my goods. And Kirk's like, you know what? I think we should stop. We got time. It's fine. Eh, whatever. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a flipping quasar, right? We got to stop. Technically these don't exist and we're checking it out. <laughs> I'm always a little confused in Star Trek between the constant rendezvous and transfer of cargo. Yeah. Well, and like the enterprise itself is both referred to like, it's the flagship of the Federation. Uh, it's referred to as a warship. It's referred to as a science vessel. And yet they spend all their time moving grain. <laughs> what is up with that? Starfleet. When Starfleet started out, it was kind of the UPS of, yeah, right. Federation. Are you saying it, it's not USS Enterprise? It's UPS Enterprise. <laughs> huh? Huh? Come on. <laughs> Which would explain why a lot of people in the Federation find human beings pretty annoying. Yeah, right. Because they're always like, "Can you sign here, please?" <laughs> <laughs> I was supposed to have that grain three days ago. Sorry, we don't know what happened to it. <laughs> Did you seriously just send me five pounds of grain in a ten-pound box? <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> How many plastic <laughs> bags are going to put inside this thing? <laughs> anyway, so they're on their way to New Paris, uh, which I thought that was where Tashiar was, but you corrected me because I read a Star Trek novel in which they said that it wasn't actually anything that was. Would uh, that be Survivors by Gene Lara? It was. It was so, actually. Survivors is a book about Tashiar. And it is, it talks about how she's from new Paris. Uh, turns out that book was written during season two of the next generation when they still didn't really have a show Bible. So <laughs> writers who were licensed there. to write stories about star Trek were just kind of making it up everywhere they went. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, now later on in star Trek, they called it, uh, Tarkana four, uh, in the episode, uh, Oh man, the dumbest episode. Tashi, our sister. Was that Legacy? It's yes, Legacy. It's when they go back to Tarkana 4 and we find out that the only reason they're not all dead is because an alarm goes off anytime any of the factions goes into the other's territory. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> yeah, that'll stop people. Yeah, right. <laughs> I anyway. did find though that New Paris is actually the New Paris start pardon me, new Paris Starbase is actually mentioned three times in passing comments in next generation. And yep. it's generally, I was going from here to here and I started at new Paris to go to someplace else. That is true. And and it is kind of interesting because if you actually listen to what Kirk says, um, they're not going to new Paris, they're going via new Paris. So that would suggest that it is actually a way station. Oh, okay. Yeah. That totally makes sense. But that's a pretty anyway. busy place. So we are watching the remaster. So we have to keep that in mind. Uh, so the shuttle looks pretty cool. It looks like it's, it's out of like, I don't know, late 
sixties Doctor Who. <laughs> um, it's got kind of that that really overdone uh, computer graphics look to it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, who am I kidding? It looks like a nineties video game. <laughs> Okay, now one small pet peeve I have about about the shuttlecraft in the remaster, the uneven takeoff. The uneven takeoff yeah. is a very Star Wars thing, yeah. but it's not something that runabouts do in Deep Space Nine. It's not something that shuttlecrafts do in, in Next Generation. It should take off evenly. Starfleet is supposed to be a professional organization. Their anti-grav generators should be synced up. So here's what I have to wonder, though. Because again, I've only seen this in the remaster. So in the remaster, they made it shaky. Is that because the special effects guy who was doing the remaster is a Star Wars fan? I would guess yes. Right? Did the original just lift off nice and smooth? And he was like, nah, it's not going to be like that. (laughs) That doesn't look right. If you watch any of the other shows, it's smooth as silk. And so, yeah, I have to, I have to wonder. Now that said, if it wasn't the case, then all those other shows are actually wrong and it should have been shaky because <laughs> this is the first one. Anyway, so Spock is going to drive cause you know, he's Spock. Um, I absolutely love that. Once again, the set for the, the shuttlecraft is you're staring at a blank wall with a row of switches underneath it. That's how you drive. <laughs> there are no monitors. There are no maps. There's no nothing except, I mean, there is a, a swing away monitor kind of thing that nobody ever looks at. <laughs> also, Which, there are no windows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do love the whole thing of, okay, we're going to take off and, you know, he hits two buttons. Right. And I just finished watching uh, the show Avenue five, which actually incorporates this. Every time they have a shuttle, the guy says, okay, well I hit this button. And in 10 minutes I hit that button. And that's basically (laughs) his entire job. Right. (laughs) I will say that uh, Voyager, they're the ones who really put it very well. They have people on the shuttles. They have to constantly be twiddling buttons the entire (laughs) time. And then Tom Paris is like, no, you know what I need? Flippy switches. <laughs> and so, yeah, they, they made it look like somebody was actually flying these things. Um, now Scotty and the yeoman also have flashy light displays next to them. Um, it, it's kind of weird. Cause it's just like, you know, Oh, the green light went on Well, I flipped the switch. The green light turns off. So that's cool. <laughs> and, and it kind of seems you're going on a scientific expedition. It kind of seems you would have like more sensors other than like, well, there's that and that and that, and that's all we really right. need. <laughs> I don't know. Again, the light turned on, so I flipped the switch. <laughs> I mean, at this point, it's like, okay, we, we have three of these sensor consoles, and then that guy has a notebook, and he's going to sketch it. <laughs> right. Now, in all fairness, they do have actually one one screen in the middle that's got a graph on it, because for some reason, a graph is what we need when we're flying through space. <laughs> Um, and that graph line starts, the green line starts going in a weird direction and they go, Ooh, that's hey, weird. The red line and the green line aren't matching up anymore. That's not good. Right. <laughs> and so Bone is like, Hey, uh, you know, we're in a quasar, right? <laughs> yeah. That's probably it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is one of those things of like, Oh, we probably should have had a briefing on this before we took off. huh? <laughs> 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 What's the worst could happen? Oh, right. 
Oh, the green light and the red red line are oh, at you now. That's not the, the red line. No. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeoman Mears advises that radiation is increasing. And this was an episode that probably that was a Rand line. And uh, hmm. Rand is no longer there. This is officially, according to show record, the episode that she was written out. Oh, is that right? Ah, okay. Yeah. So or, in, I, I don't know about show record. Uh, it sounded way more official than I think it was. <laughs> uh, before the writing of this episode is when she was fired. So they officially <laughs> did have to rewrite this episode. So she will be replaced by Yeoman Mares, who's played by Phyllis Douglas, uh, born Phyllis Callowet, and sometimes goes by Phyllis Boyce Hodges. She started her acting career at the age of two as she was Bonnie Boo, blah, 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 Bonnie Blue Butler. And Gone with the Wind. She was the baby. Was incidentally uh, DeForest Kelly's favorite movie. I totally forgot about that. That's absolutely correct. Um, She started her her adult acting career in 1957, and she did a number of movies that she was never credited in. Uh, Yeah, because that seems like a good career choice. (laughs) Her TV career started in 1960 and only lasted about 10 years. Um, she did appear in two episodes of Star Trek and two episodes of Batman. So no Mannix that I saw or Here Come the Bride. So that was kind of weird. Would you consider Mannix to be Batman adjacent? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. Um, her last IMDb entry was on a Here Comes Blake Edwards again. There we go. There's our Bl- connection. <laughs> on a Blake Edwards uh, Western, The Wild Rovers, where she was, you guessed it, uncredited of course (laughs) after uh she quit acting she worked for 33 years selling real estate in palm springs and uh lived there until she passed away in 2010 palm springs seriously what is it with that place (laughs) so spock's like hey you should stop and latimer's like um engines don't reverse (laughs) <laughs> now my favorite thing about this is Latimer's like, I'm going to do an all stop maneuver. So what does he do? He's sitting in the, okay, picture this driver's seat is Spock on the left. Latimer is in the helm, I guess on the right. He needs to turn around to his left all the way around backwards <laughs> to reach a switch that's behind him on a sidewall. Remembering there is somebody behind him in a seat that can reach that, but no, to stop the ship, to do an all stop because something's wrong, he has to spin around and reach to the wall to flip a switch. It'd be kind of like if you kept your emergency emergency brake for your car in the back seat. It's no, it's like if you kept the brake pedal in the back seat. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's so bizarre. So the weird choices with, with interfaces here, these are clearly not people who had any idea how to design anything. So what am I supposed to do? Stop ship? I don't know. Hit that button. Right. <laughs> like, I got to wonder, was that, that actor's choice? Like, were they like, just flip a switch, any switch. I don't care. <laughs> and he was like, uh, I'm going to get weird with it. <laughs> you know, I'll get a little more film time if I turn towards the camera this way right. and then flip the switch behind And they're me. like, uh, cut. And he's like, what? And they're like, eh, never mind. <laughs> just go. <laughs> Dude, do you know what's going to happen to me very, very only minutes later in this episode? I'm getting what screen time <laughs> I can here. <laughs> so the ship just kind of 
doesn't do stuff no more. <laughs> That's about as complicated as this thing gets uh, because of radiation <laughs> and the gravity well and I don't know. Like, it, I kept waiting for somebody to just be like, I don't know, space stuff. Just <laughs> something. <laughs> now something they kind of intimate, and I don't know if this was supposed to be, but I believe what was supposed to be the idea was the quasar let out a huge amount of hard radiation, like a burst. Okay. Which knocks out their instruments as well as inter- instruments on the enterprise. All right. That's fair. I can but see they that don't really follow through with it. Right. They're like, uh, people watching this don't understand anything. So <laughs> we're not going to tell them. And, and it's going to get worse when Bowman explains it later. later right? Trust me. <laughs> so Kirk's all like, Hey, Sulu, find that ship. They, they just left. You got to find them. And Sulu's like, look, man, nothing works. And Kirk's <laughs> like, I said, find them. And he's like, I, I, how am I supposed to tell you any other way? Nothing works. I got nothing. I'll flip a few switches here. Huh? No, nothing. Right. So Kirk starts walking around like an animal in a cage for some reason. But when he does, I did notice that above him, they have all the, the lights in the bridge ceiling. Oh that yeah. Are really cool. Like around the, the perimeter, like there's a, like a central circle of the, the bridge ceiling, but around the perimeter of that, there's these really cool light fixtures that are like, I don't know, like, yellow, blue, and orange, almost like there's water above them and this cool light filtering down. Clearly the RCA execs were like that. I want those, (laughs) but man, they look real neat. It was just something I noticed. It is one of the things with the remastered, just how some of this stuff pops and it's just like, okay, that's actually really cool. The color touch-ups are gorgeous. Anyway, so Kirk heads over to the science station and he's like by himself because Spock's gone and there's no <laughs> other science officers. Well, why would we have science officers on a science exploration ship? Because uh, we're on a grain mission. Ah, <laughs> grain. They got like 30 farmers though. <laughs> Man, those guys know their grain. Now, the odd thing is the ship is lost and Ferris who, who wants that grain or that the, those drugs on place on time. He's looking smug about this whole thing. Yeah. He, it's very odd. He does, man. He's got that half smile smirk going on. He, that dude loves this. He's like, <laughs> I told you you'd lose him. Jerk. <laughs> what is his deal? It seemed, yeah, it seemed a very, very odd. I mean, I could see maybe lack of concern, but out and out smugness just seemed like a really odd directorial choice. Exactly. (laughs) Now, they do say that apparently Murasaki, the potential quasar, has ionized the entire sector. Okay. Uh, Which, I mean, that's a lot. (laughs) I would have thought they would have noticed before they were in, you know, the sector. But whatever. That's cool. And really... Really, you have a spaceship that's really sensitive to ions? Yeah, I've always wondered about that. Every time they say something's ionized, I'm like, really? So a tiny, <laughs> tiny like bit of static electricity floating through <laughs> molecules that makes your ship not work? You might want to consider, I don't know, upgrading that. <laughs> might want to do something about that. <laughs> <laughs> Scotty's like, yeah, we've been meaning to do something about that. 
Right. How can you put the seatbelts in? <laughs> it's right there on the list. Uh, they'll be here on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> so now all of this has happened. We now go to credits. <laughs> and they're weird. The credits, like, okay, so this episode, they clearly decided to change up the music. And when they did, they broke it because it's like Star Trek music. And Kirk is talking in the background. It's real weird. Can't understand any episodes that do this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have to look up, somebody had an explanation for it, but I couldn't find it on this particular one because I'll be honest, I skipped the, uh, the title theme on this one. And so I didn't notice until, until you noticed it. Oh, it was real bad. I was trying desperately to figure out what was going on. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so coming back from commercial break, it is now 2821.7, <laughs> which doesn't that mean two hours later? <laughs> I, sure. Or is that two days later? I don't know. Whatever the system was at that point. <laughs> and we get uh, Sulu looking over his shoulder. <laughs> the, the great stock shot of Sulu looking over his shoulder. Right. And I love how he, the, when he looks over his shoulder, he's got kind of a playful look on his face. And you're like, that <laughs> eh, doesn't really fit this scene. Whatever. So, of course, because Uhura is a badass who can do pretty much anything on the ship, she's taken over the science station. Yay. I do notice that. Okay, Spock is gone, and all of a sudden we have a female science officer at Uhura Station. We have two females in Command Gold, and Uhura's at the science station. So as soon as Spock is gone, there's way more women on the bridge than usual. Yeah, um, I, I'm going to guess that's just like Kirk's protocols. You know he's hoping that a pillow fight breaks out. That's yeah, just, totally. Yeah. <laughs> now... Um, unfortunately you can tell in this scene or keeps bending over and like arching her back funny and like, yes, but like, okay. When I say it that way, it sounded creepy. What I mean is like, she's like hunched over, like she's trying to protect herself. It almost looks like her back is killing her the whole yes. time. And you're, you're looking at this going, why is she bending and sh- moving in such weird ways? And then as you watch more, you realize Okay, her uniform doesn't fit. That woman is self-conscious because nothing fits anymore. And the more you look at it, the more you realize they shrank it. Yeah, when you mentioned this, when you mentioned this, uh, and I watched it again, her sleeves almost come up to her elbows in this thing. Yep. So it's like, yeah, this is one of those, well, we, we made more uniforms for everybody else, but yours still gets washed daily and shrinks and replace yours every well, four weeks. Not you know what the funny weeks. thing is though, is it's easy to sit back with 2020 and go, you know, maybe she got screwed on the costume front, but actually I think it's the other way around. I have a sneaking suspicion that she had one of the nicer ones because she had, she, she's part of the bridge crew and that her nicer uniform when it gets washed those materials shrink more than all the crappy uh, polyester everybody else gets i got gotcha. you I'm, I'm betting that's what it is and that's why kirk had to go through so many shirts and spock had to go through so many shirts <laughs> because they just kept shrinking everything yeah cuz there are definitely episodes with spock that it looks like his belly button should be sticking out he's got a black right? t-shirt underneath but it looks like if he didn't his his belly button would be oh, peeking totally. out if you, if you pay attention and watch them in order, you can absolutely see those chenille shirts shrinking up. Chenille? No, not chenille. That's the wrong word. What am I thinking? Velour. Velour. Velour shorts. Shorts? Velour shirts. 
Velour <laughs> shorts is a totally different episode. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Ferris is sitting back being smug again with I told you so. <laughs> I Kirk, like this whole, you know, it's not my fault. I got to do science. <laughs> <laughs> so Kirk's like, listen, we got two days that we're going to sit here and look at this. And Ferris is like, two days, <laughs> two days. <laughs> Nothing he's doing is going to save people's lives in two days. Like, seriously, man, you're bringing supplies. You're not going to the front line. (laughs) Yeah. Ferris's whole thing on this entire episode is just a very, very, very odd character choice. Because he basically just complains the entire time. (laughs) I, I love that he's sitting there and he's all pissed off. And he's like, I was against this from the very beginning. And then somebody walks in and hands him a cup. And he's like, ooh, coffee. Yeah. Also, you can see if you watch them drink coffee in this scene. So they're they're drinking from the styrofoam cups that have been painted gray. Um, <laughs> and you can see that uh, Ferris, who is a guest actor and does not do this very often, grabs that cup fully. Whereas Shatner, <laughs> who has held on to these cups before, holds it extraordinarily gingerly like, <laughs> I'm not getting this on my hands again. <laughs> it's pretty good stuff. Anyway. So her is like, Hey, guess what? There's a habitable planet. It's called Taurus too. And it's pretty much in the middle of everything. So <laughs> that also means that it won't be impacted by the Murasaki effect. Now the Murasaki effect is an interesting way to say that considering none of these people know what's going on anywhere, but they know it's called the Murasaki effect. <laughs> we so, got to stop and study this thing. There's already an effect named after it. But we're acting like this just popped up. We've never seen this thing before. Right. Or either that or they just really <laughs> name things fast. Like they, they show up at the Klingon homeworld and they're like, uh, yeah, that's the Kronos effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone knows that. All right. Anyway. So Kirk's like, hey, Sulu, set a course. Sulu's like, um, you, you know, we can't see where we're going, right? <laughs> I mean, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the Galileo has landed on another planet, which geology consists largely of styrofoam paper mache. And what, what I have learned from Star Trek is if a planet's geology is primarily spray foam and paper mache, or if the planet looks like Southern California, you're going to be able to breathe there. That's, That's not going to be a problem. hundred percent true. Um, <laughs> now it is also notable that we can tell this is a styrofoam planet because uh, some horrible things happen to the set while we're here. <laughs> Not least of which is at one point you'll see Spock <laughs> lean against a rock and it it like squishes. <laughs> it's good stuff. Now I did mention that the uh, the original design was uh, a bit more curvy. Um, the AMT uh, model builder uh, Gene Winfield um, actually designed and and built the the exterior and interior sets. However, there's some uh, argument whether uh, a Studebaker designer by the name of Thomas Cadlog also uh, assisted with the design of the shuttle. And in the end, Matt Jeffrey says, I don't know. I think they both probably contributed, but I don't, you know, they both take credit. I, I think they probably both contributed and I don't know who should really take credit. Now that said though, that does mean that AMT furnished miniatures, a full size or full scale set and a full scale interior set in 
in, in uh, or as a swap for getting the rights to build the plastic models, which yeah. turned out to be a huge windfall for them because those plastic models were ridiculously successful. Oh, yes. Yes. I had two. Now, it turns out there were no seatbelts on the shuttle. Um, everybody <laughs> got hurt. Thought? Right. Now, it, on top of that, uh, one thing that uh, I, I think it was on a Wikipedia article, I was reading about the, uh, the design of this set, and they mentioned the forward shifted seats. And it, it's true. If you watch this, um, you know, you, you've been to a friend's house before where you sit in that one chair, and if you're not careful, <laughs> you're going to slide right off onto your knees onto the floor. <laughs> Um, that chair is what they made this entire shuttle out of <laughs> because everybody's pitched just a little bit forward. And if they're not paying attention, they're on the floor. And what's even better is they don't bolt down the chairs at all on this. It's just like they grab, I'm imagining there's a, a table in the enterprise cafeteria, right? That there's no <laughs> chairs around because they just grab them and threw them in the shuttle. Totally. Craft. How many people Kirk are walks going? into the Everyone conference room chair. and he's like, wait, where did you guys take my chairs again? <laughs> okay. Before you go down to the shuttle, to the shuttle bay, stop by the cafeteria, grab a chair. Right. <laughs> so maybe the seatbelts just aren't necessary because nothing's bolted down. So what are you going to get? What are you going to be belted to? I don't know. So there, there's stuff just scattered everywhere. Oh no, we've crashed. Um, McCoy is like, Hey everybody, are you good? And everybody's like, yeah, 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 I'm good. And he's like, okay, well, my job's done. (laughs) (laughs) Good good job, Bones. (laughs) And Boma starts talking. (laughs) And he's like bleeding a little bit from his nose. And McCoy looks like, oh, I have a job now. And he opens an emergency panel in the floor and pulls out the one first aid item, you know, he needs tissues. <laughs> like you had to open a panel in the floor under the carpet, give the guy a Kleenex. Come on. <laughs> it was fantastic. These things are great. You know, they have their own tissue dispensers. Well, it's under the floor, but they have their own tissue dispensers. These are space tissues. Federation issue. Uh, so, <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> okay, so Boma starts with this whole thing because they're like, what happened? And Boma starts this whole thing with, oh, well, I think the magnetic effect multiplied our speed and shot us through the center of the effect. And it's like, what? And Spock just turns around and goes, yeah, that sounds right. Yep, that, that seems fair. <laughs> so you I'm know, on that- Vulcan, that's how we land all our shuttles. <laughs> That I mean, that explanation made absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it was just like, where is he coming up for that? And Spock's like, yeah, sounds good. I think at that point, Spock was just like, Ugh, if I tell him good boy, he'll just shut up. <laughs> now, Lieutenant Boma is played by actor Don Marshall, who's an actor many people would recognize. He was born in San Diego in 1936. He was an engineering student and uh, tried acting on the advice of a friend and his first acting coach was actually the director of this episode, Robert Gist. His friend was like, dude, you're terrible at engineering. <laughs> acting. Your your theories on magnetism make no sense. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he had some history with Gene Roddenberry. Um, he actually was an episode of The Lieutenant, which was a Roddenberry uh, joint. 
Um, and in that episode, his wife was played by Nichelle Nichols. Hey, um, there we go. They had also previously worked together on a CBS uh, Reptor Playhouse. Nice. His big acting job was in a series called Land of the Giants. Do you mean that um, show where he piloted a ship that was forced down onto a planet of giants? <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> that is the one. Um, uh, he was actually supposed to be an occasional role type character on Star Trek, but as he got cast in Land of Giants, that never really happened. He got a better job. Um, later in his career, he actually wrote a sequel script for Escape from the Land of the Giants, but he was never really able to get the whole thing together. Mm. Um, in 2012, he spoke about how much he really enjoyed working with Roddenberry. And, uh, he said working with his former acting, acting, uh, coach now director just was a bit of a challenge for him. Cause for some reason, J- just wanted Boma to play the character more James Dean. Like he wanted to lean against the bulkheads and be kind of surly and laconic and defiant. And Ugh. Marshall really kind of had a problem with it because he's like, this dude's an astrophysicist. How far would he get in his career acting yeah, this right. way? Listen, so, man, I, I just can't <laughs> follow your orders because <laughs> I'm too busy standing over here smoking and unfiltered. Everything's just <laughs> getting on me, man. <laughs> <laughs> this ship crash is tearing me apart. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, uh, did, or, listen, uh, folks. If, if you have not seen East of Eden, you got to see it. It's so good. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, so yeah, Marshall was really did not think that's really where the character needed to go. And while they were working, Nimoy was kind of picking up on the fact that Marshall was not real comfortable, and took him aside and said, "Hey, you know what? What do you think the problem is?" And Marshall told him, "This is what the director is telling me." to do and Nimoy says you know what you play it the way that you want to play it I will take care of the director and according to Marshall he played it the way he wanted to play it and he never heard a word about it so that's awesome yeah he was also in the thing with two heads the famous Ray Milland of Rosie Greer movie whoa if you have not seen that film has a great 10 minute uh, dirt bike chase scene that um (laughs) In other words, if you haven't seen that film, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Marshall eventually would start his own production company, which primarily focused on documentaries and commercials. Um, To my knowledge, he is still alive today, but I couldn't confirm that or deny that. So we're just going to leave that as is. Eh, He is somewhere in the universe. (laughs) So Spock is like, hey, Scotty, what's going on here? And he's getting kind of jerky about it kind of annoying and and uh scotty's like it, it's a mess there everything's all broken blah 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 blah, blah. and <laughs> spock is immediately like shut up do your job and it's like whoa dude you asked me a question i was answering and spock's just like shut up he, he acts like scotty was reciting poetry or anything picturesque descriptions won't fix the problem right dude, he just said it's a mess that's that's not really picturesque Oof. i don't know and uh Scotty is like, hey, Spock, um, you didn't think that radio was going to work when you tried to call the Enterprise, did you? (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Which is one of those things of like, well, no, but 
you would try it, right? I mean, yeah, right. That's not one of those things you want to be down there five days and somebody says, hey, did we ever actually try the radio? Dude, I can't tell you how many times in my life I've had that situation. <laughs> Heck, just the other night, I I get off the ice, my entire hockey team standing outside the door going, who's got the key? 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 <laughs> and then somebody goes, huh, did anybody actually try the door? <laughs> sure enough, it was unlocked. <laughs> anyway. So for some reason, McCoy, since Jim is around, starts being a little more small town doctorish. Yeah. I, I guess just to annoy Spock. You know, I'm just a small town space doctor, but. <laughs> Which I'm kind of asking, let's look at the crew makeup of this also. You have, you have this scientific expedition to look at a astrophysical phenomenon and you take your chief surgeon. Mm-hmm. You take an astrophysicist. Okay, that makes sense. Your head science officer. That makes sense. Yeoman. (laughs) A yeoman to record everything. Two guys in gold, command officers. Why are they there? Oh, and don't forget your chief engineer. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm guessing Scotty just wanted, it's like, oh, I want to go. Right. (laughs) The only thing they're missing is away mission command jackets. It just uh, seemed like a very, very strange. I have no idea why Latimer uh, Gatano, the two command officers, are there. Yeah, they're just like eh, whatever. <laughs> like they're <laughs> not even security. They're gold shirts. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Then Spock is like just reading everybody the riot act. This is how you're going to get things done. This is how we're going to go do this. Go do that. Go do this. And it it very much has that feel like you know. You want to know what it's like when Kirk finally dies? This is what it's going to be like. <laughs> We're actually going to get some stuff done around here. Right. <laughs> so I do like also that Spock will later mention that there's very little on this ship that we don't use to actually fly the ship. But they go to the back and they just open up a drawer that's filled with phasers. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> And and it's it's great too. So Latimer and Gaetano, they they head to the back, and Spock just starts doling them out. There's more phasers on the in this drawer than there are people on the ship. I, I literally, there should have been an NRA bumper sticker on the back of this thing, right? <laughs> it was just so weird. I don't know. Um, Scotty and the Yeoman are the only red shirts, so they're not going to leave. Uh, they're going to stay on the ship. Uh, the gold shirts leave. Um, I'm not really sure what they're planning on doing. Cause they just leave and start walking around. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is notable though, that they did have the little golden tan, uh, uh, holster belts. Yes. The, the, the ones that look more like a sash. It was funny that they, they just carried them outside with them. Yeah. Which it was one of those things of, uh, we, the last episode, the, uh, the, um, where they're on the planet where everything comes alive. They didn't have the little sashes. They just hooked their right, guns right to the, right to their pants. And yep. well, that's because they had, they suddenly discovered Velcro. Um, I think they got <laughs> it on, um, Rigel six, <laughs> uh, the Velcro planet. <laughs> so McCoy's like, uh, you think, you think the enterprise is ever going to find us? Spock's like, well, not if we're on this planet. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it is uh it is funny though that uh, while Spock is talking, 
he never really looks at anything and just keeps on flipping switches up and down. <laughs> and it's like the same three switches the whole time he's talking. Just click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. <laughs> nope. Still doesn't work. Nope. Still doesn't work. <laughs> it's, it's that old thing where, you know, your battery's dying, but you're still cranking the engine, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so the enterprise is in orbit. It can't scan anything. So it doesn't know if they're even there. Um, and so Jim's like, Hey, Hey, have we tried, uh, tying into auxiliary power? <laughs> this annoys me so much because it's literally like asking somebody, Hey, the car's out of control. Well, did you try the brake? Auxiliary <laughs> power is the very first thing you go to. It is like you, uh... the first one Oh one of any starship. Hey, if things aren't working, try auxiliary power. Did you try turning it on? I'm just curious. <laughs> Janeway does this a lot too. She's always asking. This is this is a sign of a captain who doesn't trust her crew. Well, Did you try auxiliary power? Yes, we tried auxiliary power. In all fairness, though, as a computer troubleshooter, that is how you have to handle things. Like when you deal with people troubleshooting their stuff, you have to ask things like, is the computer on? Because I can tell you more times I have I have troubleshot computers. Now I'm, I'm a little bit older, so my troubleshooting computers days goes back to when there was a monitor and a CPU, (laughs) which is what everybody calls the tower that has the computer in it that contains a CPU. But anyway, um, you say, did you turn the TV part on? And they go, of course I did. And in the background (laughs) you hear click. Well, it seems to be working now. Are you sure you turned the power off? Well, I turned on the TV. Can you turn on the other part? Yeah. See, this is this is what I'm saying, though. If you're doing it with somebody, you're doing technical support, that's one thing. But if you're asking your, oh, I don't know, engineer, helmsman, or your, your uh, tactical officer, have you tried that? You're going to get slapped eventually. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> if I asked a question like that to anybody that works for me, they'd be like, dude, seriously, shut up. <laughs> and rightfully so. <laughs> anyway. So um, at this point, because auxiliary power is not functioning, we we have to assume that the continuum transfunctioner is clearly misaligned. <laughs> so we're going to need a Schrodinger compensator to ensure our readings are accurate. <laughs> Well, until you actually, if it's a Schrodinger compensator, until you actually look at the meter. Exactly. It's both accurate and inaccurate. Exactly. (laughs) By the way, the transporters don't work. (laughs) Surprise. I love this line. Are the transporters working? Not yet, Captain. We beamed down some inert material. (laughs) And when we beamed it back, it tried to eat us. No, no, it's going to be a minute. No, they they beamed it back. It wasn't quite right. (laughs) Huh, that's not supposed to do that, is it? <laughs> Was that steaming when we sent it down? <laughs> it turned inside out. <laughs> and it exploded. <laughs> God, I love that movie. All right. So they send the shuttle Columbus to send, to do flybys, uh, which I thought was kind of funny because um, we actually had a shuttle Columbus. Kind of cool. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me. Kirk is just kind of yelling things at this point. He's, he's done actually talking to people. He's just like, you know, auxiliary (laughs) forward (laughs) space stuff. What's the thing he comes up with? They say, try using overload power on the transporters. Right. Um, no. (laughs) What? (laughs) 
<laughs> did you just say that? So, you know, there's a lot of things we could try overload power on this ship. Transporters. Yeah. Not one of them. Right. <laughs> I do like Ahura's attitude too. Cause she's clearly gotten to the point where she's just like, yeah, they're dead. Um, <laughs> no, I have not heard any communications. Nope. I can't find them on scanners. No, no, they're, they're dead. <laughs> And, and Ferris, Ferris, of course, agrees with her wholeheartedly. He's like, why, why are you even bothering? They're dead. You, they really should have had Ferris wearing a really nice watch because he's just in love with telling him how much time they have left. It's and true. It really seems like he should have had like some sort, you know, a really nice Apple watch or something that he kept on showing to her. See? See? <laughs> I've told you. Now, you then they notice have, You only have two mistake. days and four minutes left, and I've got in 125 steps so far today. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of getting in his steps, did you notice he's got a jaunty little cape on that outfit? And an ascot. Ooh, it's a bold choice indeed. Ascot seemed to be uh, the dude that gets killed with the head patch in uh, Conscious of the King is rocking one. And we'll see yes, a couple yes. other guys, uh, different ambassadors. So it seems like ascots are a, kind of a symbol of power. In, oh, man. In, in the, the 60s, ascots definitely meant you were rich. Uh, that's that's what tv has taught me either that or you were you know charles nelson riley uh, thank you i was trying to come up with the name and i couldn't drink it up thank you so much <laughs> so ferris is like you know in book 19 section 33 paragraph tw- paragraph 12 of the regulations blah, 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 blah. kirk's like yeah okay Whatever. Uh, you swear the two were married. Seriously. <laughs> and then we go back to the planet and you know how Spock was harassing McCoy earlier? Well, now McCoy's getting his comeuppance. He's like, you listen here. I don't think he's quite drunk yet, but he sounds like he might be soon. <laughs> well, well, Scotty's having to do some work. So, uh, so uh, McCoy probably found his, uh, his stash while, uh, Scotty was distracted by actually Seriously. doing something. <laughs> and this, this whole thing is taking place outside the ship. They're, they're standing behind the, the shuttle while they're having this conversation. And McCoy is all up in Spock's grill while Spock's trying to do repairs. <laughs> He's just like, Oh, I, I know you've always coveted command. I know you, Mr. Spock, this being your, and Spock, first of all, we now have strange new world. So we have some, backstory mm-hmm. so no it's definitely not spock's first command and it would be a little odd for a guy to be a first officer at this point in his career and not to have had command at some point do you think he was actually saying it was his first command or was he saying that like you know th- this is your first taste of being the only guy in charge like uh, I, okay like i i think i think it's more like you know in the past you've had backup and this is the first time that it's really all on your shoulders I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think you're right. Even, even still like at this position, he should have done that before. <laughs> it's like your head physician has not read the service record of your, of your uh, seriously first officer whatsoever. And then he ends it with, Oh, I know you Spock. And it's like, no, no dude. <laughs> right. All you know is about his green blood, which we know. Cause you just keep reminding us. It's like, Spock's like, you do remember I stole the ship. Right. Like, you were there once. I did it once before you showed up and We've I did done it this while like you were here. 30 times now, dude. Come on. <laughs> so I also want to point out that this shuttle set piece, when you get up close like this, it is awesome. 
There's like vacuform plastic parts. There's cool panels all over the place. They're yes. really open with real electronics in them and all the, the like braided hoses and stuff. They're gorgeous. Um, the, the set dressers also put out an amazing assortment of tools and the way they did it, they like stacked them all up on the fin. Like he was in the middle of working on his car on the side of the road. I loved that. I loved what right. I saw it actually still, I never really noticed it watching the episode, but I, when I saw a still of it, it was like, Oh, that's hilarious. Right. That looks real. It totally is great. Like you kept, I kept uh, waiting to see like smears of greasy palms on it and stuff, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) it was just done so well. Um, Now, incidentally uh, inside the ship near the back, uh, when when they go back inside, you can see there is a Foxborough controller, which is a, it's for measuring the amount of sewage that's in a sewage container. Uh, but they've, they've used one to act as a piece of equipment strapped to the back wall and (laughs) in true Star Trek, the original series style, it's just kind of stapled to the wall with nothing connecting to it. (laughs) Um, anyway, also on the tail fin, one of the tools was, um, the laser beacon that's going to be used in the Squire of Gothos, uh, which in that show was designed for people on the ground to contact a starship in orbit. We're going to assume that the batteries were dead. (laughs) Oh, is that what that's for? (laughs) Dude, you really need to keep these things charged. If you're going to keep them in the emergency kit, you need to keep them charged. I like to think that when Spock sees somebody else use it in Squire Gothos, he's like, Oh man, that would have come in so handy. (laughs) I wish I had known. <laughs> uh, I thought that was a Heisenberg compensator. <laughs> it It is weird also that the, the whole general attitude everyone here is that they just really can't accept the fact that Spock is in charge. It yeah. seems like a mystery to them. I think it's the racism thing again, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, honestly, I, it's one of those things where I couldn't tell watching the episode if it was st- st- strictly that they were like, oh, the logic thing doesn't work with humans. Or if they were like, he's not like us, so we should treat him differently. Like, I he, couldn't quite tell. Yeah, there's a line that has come up a little bit later that I point out that kind of hits it a little bit, a little bit harder. Um, but it is one of those things of and it's it's one of the odd things, too, because they're going on about, Oh, Spock is throwing his weight around Spock is a dude who actually begrudgingly took the first officer position because he kept his science officer position. You don't see that on yeah. other ships That's where true. somebody's doing double duty because Spock liked the science more than the command thing. I think it was one of those things of, well, you could stay here and be the head science guy. If you take the, the executive officer's position, otherwise we're going to have to transfer you and, so I was like, yeah, I'll, I don't want to go here. back to Vulcan. It's hot. <laughs> they keep the enterprise at 68 degrees. It's lovely. <laughs> and, and you know, the guy in command right now is, is, is such a goofball that I'm going to be able to get away with a lot. Trust right. me on this. Exactly. You know, I'm I'm, be I might even steal the like ship. 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so Scotty's like, Hey Spock, um, listen, we got a bit of a problem we lost a lot of fuel. So if we want to get out of here, we got to lose, I don't know, 500 pounds. And Spock's like, 
Oh, so you mean three people? (laughs) 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 Which is one of those things of, I don't think you did that by mistake. (laughs) Yeah, right. And McCoy's like, "Um, I believe you mean equipment, right? And Spock's like, "Um, there's no stuff on this ship. (laughs) I mean, other than all the extra guns we carry. Well, I mean, seriously, though, you look around this set and it's like, um, well, there's the chairs. There's the floor. <laughs> I don't know what else we're going to get rid of here. And, and I was like, why would you decide? Yeah. I was like, uh, because I'm in charge. Well, why don't we draw lots? Well, no, that's not the way that a military <laughs> hierarchy system works, dude. Right. I don't know. Um, and then when so, Boma tries to, he's like, how are you going to figure it out? And Spock's <laughs> like, well, I'll do it logically. And Boats comes back with, Life and death are rarely logical, Mr. Spock. That's coming from your chief surgeon, people. Yep, exactly. (laughs) So I'm guessing that he just likes to do surgery by the feel of it. (laughs) And Spock, is like, he's using common sense and he's still defending himself. He really shouldn't be. At this point, he should have been like, because I said so. Um, (laughs) I've got a gun, so shut up. Can you imagine somebody asking... Jean-Luc Picard or Benjamin Sisko or Catherine Janeway. Well, why do you get to decide? Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, there's the one episode of Voyager where at one point, uh, uh, Paris kind of d- does this with Chakotay and Chakotay tells him, Hey, listen, we either maintain the chain of command or we take this outside. Yeah. Right. <laughs> listen, you may not agree with my position, but I will end you. <laughs> <laughs> so Spock is like, you know what? Why don't we, why don't you guys just go outside and see if there's any damage? And Boma's <laughs> like, there might be damage to your head. <laughs> and I love the fact that he tells him to do it and neither Boma or Kurt or uh, McCoy move. Right. They just sit Spock right there. Spock goes outside and they both just sit there. Yep. <laughs> I just don't understand why everybody's so surprised by this guy. Like, <laughs> How long have you been on this ship? Right. In the workplace, this would be like, you know, yeah, Bill's like that. You know, if you want to get your project done, this is how you talk to him. (laughs) But no, here they're like, he said, what? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Anyway, so Latimer. I I think next time I get, I, at my job, when they ask to do a huge project, I think I'm going to throw that out there. Why don't we just draw lots? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Why do you get to decide? (laughs) I'd love to see what my boss says. If I say, Why is it your call? It's like, what? I was doing a thing from Star Trek. Right. I don't know. My boss would be like, well, then you decide. <laughs> uh, Latimer and Gatano are walking around outside now in the mists. And they hear some strange sounds that are coming from everywhere. Now, these sounds, I mean, it's like a... Okay, they describe it as leather against wood, which, I mean, it kind of <laughs> does sound like that. But, like, you're just taking leather and wood and rubbing them together. <laughs> like, it's just such a bizarre sound. I don't really understand why it's supposed to be scary in any way. It's just kind of yeah. like, is something moving, I guess? I don't know. Uh, it, it, <laughs> these guys, they totally reminded me of, like, kittens. 
<laughs> like as soon as you look away from kittens, they immediately get in trouble. Right. And these guys are like, Ooh, I'm going to climb this rock now. <laughs> Why? Why are you climbing the rock? Yes, I, 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 I was guessing they were trying to get a better view, but they don't seem to be cl- climbing a rock. That's very high. Yeah. Well, and they climb it really weird. Like the guy, like he puts a foot up on the rock and then he starts, he moves backwards and like kind of crab walks <laughs> up the side of the rock. It makes no sense. And he, you look at him and you're like, well, he's about to fall off of this thing. Cause there's no way he can hold on to that. <laughs> and so we see something kind of large moving around and it's fuzzy <laughs> and it throws a spear and stabs Latimer in the back. <laughs> and Latimer screams and falls. <laughs> Now, Latimer is played by Reese Vaughn, a guy born in 1935 in Pennsylvania. He had a TV career in the 60s, but really there wasn't much past that and passed away in 2010 in San Diego. Honestly, could find very, very little on him. That's too bad. So Spock and Boma are like, we heard a scream. Let's run towards it. (laughs) So they go running. Gatano climbs down because he's still in his weird crab walk position up on the wall, <laughs> gets down towards Latimer's body and starts firing his phaser everywhere. I, I did like that when he was firing his phaser, he moved his hand a little bit. And every time he moved his hand, the phaser beam would disconnect from the, from the phaser. That was pretty good. Um, and we start hearing growling because any creature that's scary in Star Trek growls <laughs> and lets you know he's there. Right. Rah, the, rah, 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 rah. I am perfectly sentient, but all I can say is. Rah, 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 rah. <laughs> now the weird thing is, and this is something I noticed even when I was a kid, when Gaetano gets to the ground, there's an obvious film overlay of fog mm-hmm. that's obscuring about the, the bottom fifth of the screen. And I always thought that was weird. We'll come to find out the reason was Latimer's body was, there with a spear sticking out of his back and the NBC executives were like, Oh no, 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 no. We're not going to have a guy with a steer st- spear sticking out of his back, like laying there. That's, that's a little right. too intense for prime time. We can have cowboys shoot an entire village. That's fine to put on TV, <laughs> but this guy with a spear in his back. No, thank you. No, we're going to have to have you put a fog overlay on that. That's going to look really, really weird. And we're just going to see the spear shaft just sticking up out of the fog. Right. While Gaetano fires his phaser. So Spock and, and Boma arrive. Gaetano is like freaked out and in shock. Uh, he doesn't seem to really be doing anything at this point. <clears throat> and that was kind of his career, actually. Uh, Gaetano was played by uh, Peter Marco, uh, guy born in 1934 in Ohio. Most of his career was in the 64 from 1964 to 70 doing various small TV roles. His last credit was in 1977 in what we're going to refer to as a small film. Um, um, and then this may be a small film that was available in coin operated machines. Yeah. 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 That sort of small film. Yeah. Um, and passed away in 1991 in Florida, but again, not a lot on him. Yeah. Uh, Gaetano reports that, uh, what he saw was like a giant ape. Well, and then he looks at, at Latimer and he says, well, at least it was quick for him. 
And Spock shows up and he's like, well, I didn't see anything. And Gatano's like, are you calling me a liar? <laughs> Dude, no, I just yeah, didn't see it. Reaction. <laughs> All I said was, I didn't see it. What did it look like? <laughs> Golly. And then Spock picks up the spear and he's like, well, this is a fulsome point, just like the ones found in New Mexico on Earth. <laughs> Which again, how does Spock know so much about ancient Earth? I, it really weirds me out. I, I assume it's because he he knew he's going to be serving with humans, so he tried to find things to talk about. Yeah, right. And he's like uh, archaeology. <laughs> they they are sure to enjoy their own archaeology. The, the thing that creeps me out is when he pulls the spear point out. There's like eight inches of blood <laughs> on this spear point. I mean, this thing went through Latimer, right? Latimer kebabs. <laughs> so Boma's like, "What do you care about the weaponry?" <clears throat> And he's like, what about Latimer? And <laughs> what about Latimer? <laughs> right? Spock's Did any like, of these guys serve in the Klingon war? Seriously. Like, you don't know the things <laughs> I've seen, man. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever noticed that Spock's got that thousand yard stare. <laughs> so Gatano tells Spock he wants to bring the body back. And Spock's like, all right, well, let me help. And they're both like, we've got this. <laughs> that's, that's the other one I was mentioning. I was like, okay, no, this is racism. Yeah, totally. When he specifically says, we'll do it. Yeah. Know, it's like, okay, don't, don't oh, touch him with your it, green. Cause I'm not hands. human. Huh? Okay. I see. All right. And I, I'm not sure Spock really gets it. Right. He's, he's been with these guys that smell really bad for quite a while now. <laughs> and he's still leaning really hard into the logic. Like he's a smart guy. He should know by now that like, Eh, maybe when they're being emotional and squishy, maybe back down a little bit. I, this is just my opinion. I think because he felt because he dealt with racism in the opposite direction, pretty much his entire childhood at this point, he's pretty much just numb to it. Yeah, that could be. He's just like, you know what? I I don't fit in with them. I don't fit in with you. I'm sick of trying. Screw y'all. True. So back on the enterprise, (laughs) Jim's drinking coffee. And losing hope. (laughs) (laughs) And Ferris shows up to show off his watch again, running out of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. He keeps on coming up to the bridge to remind them. Seriously. I, so, okay. Again, I haven't watched this episode since I was a little, little kid. And so I'm watching it and I'm like, that dude's in Kirk's head, isn't he? (laughs) Like, he's not really there. He's just a figment of his imagination telling him we're running out of time. Cause it like, did you notice nobody else on the bridge really was giving him the time of day? And I was just like, he he's, he's a figment of his imagination, isn't he? Uh, it was so weird. <laughs> yeah. Cause later, you know, fair, when Kirk brings up and you keep on coming up at first, like I haven't been to the bridge in three days, dude. I don't right? know what you're talking about. <laughs> I got off the enterprise a week ago. <laughs> So Kirk's like, Hey Columbus, you need to open up your search path. And Sulu's like, um, that's not really how that works. Cause if you do that, it's going to leave like miles on each side unchecked. And Kirk's like, just do your job. <laughs> and I love the end of the scene because it's real obvious after, after Kirk tells him, mind your helm, Sulu. 
That's literally just gets up and walks off. Dude, okay. I didn't notice it. I saw that you wrote that down and I, I rewound and watched it again. And you're 100% right. Like all you see off the edge of the camera is his chair spinning. <laughs> like, That's so know. good. <laughs> Mind that, my helm. Go to right. hell. So Ferris declares there's 24 more hours and then the turbo lift doors close. Dun, dun, dun. I, I love between the the interior sensor cameras and the elevator doors, just the dramatic settings that all of the mechan- all the uh, devices on the Enterprise have. Seriously, those doors slam shut. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't do it until he gets out. You have 24 more hours. Right. I, li- I wish it would have been like, you have 24 more hours. Bam. Ow! <laughs> <laughs> so Spock and Scotty decide that they're going to play weekend mechanic. <laughs> Uh, Spock's sitting there like, uh, you're going to want to, you're going to want to do that. Uh, don't, don't, don't forget that over there. And Scotty's like, no, we can't do that. <laughs> McCoy and the yeoman, they do some spring cleaning and they throw what, what equipment they can out, but they're still 150 pounds overweight. So one guy, okay. immediately one dude. Hold on. They're spring cleaning and throwing things out is they went to the back of the ship, picked up a bunch (laughs) of heavy boxes and put them in the front of the ship. That's not exactly getting rid of stuff guys. (laughs) Also, if you're throwing this stuff out, aren't we kind of breaking the prime directive here? No. Well, Ooh, it depends. Our giants intelligent. You're going to leave Latimer there. You're going to throw this equipment out because even if the, the apes aren't intelligent, Eventually, they might evolve to become intelligent, and then they're going to dig this stuff up. That's true. Well, I mean, you, if you don't leave the stuff, they could eat Latimer, so that's fine. True. Okay. But, yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. Although, they don't really have a prime directive yet, so. <laughs> anyway, so McCoy's we like. do whatever the hell we want. Right. So, let me get this straight. You're going to leave somebody here, because we're still 150 over. <laughs> and. He doesn't really have any other options. He's just like, your decision's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, Spock is sitting there. He's like, that guy's dead. Why do we need to take him back? He's dead. (laughs) And then Boma books in. It's like, oh, hey, we're having a funeral for Latimer. Would you speak at it, Spock? And Spock's like, I'm trying to get the ship off the ground, dude. Right. I'm trying to keep the rest of you from dying. And they pitch a fit. Ugh. Who are these people? Bones is just like this is your this is your place, Spock. It's like no, my place is trying to get people like as many of the people survive off of this planet. Well, as the commander, that's really my job. It's so weird because all they care about is decorum and and like <laughs> like ceremony. What is the deal, people? Yeah, it's it, and it's going to continue just to be weird because they just seem to be prioritizing the wrong things. Oh, totally. The whole time. Um, also, I, I did notice another aside. The, there were a bunch of screwdrivers on the floor that are actually socket drivers. I had that set when I was a kid. <laughs> my, my dad and I used to use those to fix all kinds of stuff. They actually come, they come in a really cool box. It's like. Uh, a black box that you put all the screwdrivers in standing up and then it's got a clear cover that snaps on on top. Oh, what? yes. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Oh yeah. So cool. I love those things. Anyway, actually, if you put a little hinge on it, it would totally look like something out of Star Trek. 
Uh, so Scotty's sitting there and he's, he's turning a crank somewhere in there. And all of a sudden he goes, Oh, Oh no. Stripped it. Actually, no, he didn't. He didn't even sound like that. Right. He goes, Hey Spock, all the fuel's gone. That's Spock's it. like, Oh really? What happened? Uh, I turned the thing and all the fuel leaked out. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Like their, their reactions are so just like, Oh, nuts. That's too bad. Now yeah, of, of, of all the, everyone else is kind of freaking out. And the two of them are really kind of dealing with, we're trying to get the boat ready for the weekend. Right. <laughs> uh, incidentally, the thing he was working on that leaked all the fuel out does in fact happen to be a blending. Uh, it's a, a blending valve. It's got two, uh, pressure valves, one on each side and pressure gauges as well. And it's used to, to, uh, blend fuel. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. It was just kind of cool that uh, they they actually used a real fuel piece in in the set, um, <clears throat> and not digital, purely analog. Absolutely, you can't trust those computers lines. now, can you? <laughs> so uh, McCoy is like uh, Spock. Something weird's going on outside. So let's all run out there. <laughs> Let's all go to the lobby. Scotty's kind of like, um, I'm doing something, so I'm going to stay here. Right. (laughs) Uh, So they go outside. Katano's like, hey, um, are we getting ready? They're making a bunch of noise. (laughs) And (laughs) Boma's like, no, they must just be having a party. So... The astrophysicist all of a sudden becomes a cultural anthropologist. Of course. <laughs> that seems right. It was my minor. <laughs> and Spock's like, no, no, no. They're too primitive to be tribal. It's more of a loose association. Uh, right? Seriously. Like a club. <laughs> I don't know. Spock is immediately like, wow, you humans really like to kill stuff, don't you? Yeah. They're just like, hey, let's go shoot them. Right. And then they seem shocked when Spock's like, uh, let's think about this. I don't know. The the logical fallacies that the original series crew came up with during crises, (laughs) they're just so just bonkers. And and I love when Spock talks about, you know, I, I really don't like the way you Earthmen just, you know, decide let's shoot something. And Gatano says, well, at least we're practical about it now. Now you're going to talk about being practical. Yeah, y- you wanted to bury that dude while there's bad things out there, but now we're going to be practical about things. Of course. <laughs> also, Spock has now mentioned the whole leather on wood sound, which has now become pretty much a drone that's going on constantly. <laughs> so I have to ask, what are the giants doing? Because if that leather on wood sound just keeps on going, like it's not, you know, I'm holding on to a shield or something. Like, <laughs> what is that? It's bizarre. Yeah. Um, so Gatenos tells Spock, he's like, listen, there's more of us than more of them. And uh, Spock is, or, or, excuse me, there's more of us than there is of you. And Spock's like, yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm in your charge. boss. <laughs> <laughs> And immediately you see in Spock's mind that you just got moved to the top of guess who's going to stay behind. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You know, have you considered wearing this red shirt? (laughs) So Boma and Gatano want to shoot and kill the apes. And Spock's like, no, I think we just need to make a display of force. And 
that'll satisfy them. They'll go away. And both, both of them are really, really ticked off that they're not going to get to shoot something. Yeah. They absolutely should be court-martialed after this is over. (laughs) Now, actually in, in, uh, there's, I forget which book it is. Um, but there is a, a book that happens after the fact that, um, that does say that Scotty makes a, a case for having Boma court-martialed after this is over. And he does oh, yes. in fact get uh, court-martialed. It's a dreadnought by Diane Carey. Dreadnought. That's it. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a, a cool little detail. Yes. Yeah. So um, all of a sudden while they're walking around, a creature throws a spear and his shield at them. Not really sure why, because that's a weird choice. <laughs> well, I do like he throws the spear and Spock doesn't even think twice. Spock just unloads on him with a phaser. <laughs> right. But somehow this leather shield stops a phaser bolt. Yeah, well, I mean. <laughs> you might want to turn the power setting up. Just right, exactly. <laughs> well, you know what? He was out there to do a show of force. Maybe he had it set on stun. There you go. Uh, yeah, we'll accept that. Yeah, sure. Now the spear and the shield that were thrown at them were specially made for the gentleman Mafai, who, excuse me, plays the giant, um, to, to handle. And they wanted it to look extra small in his hands because he's a big giant guy. And so they made little props to make him look really big. And then when he throws them, they get thrown at the people. And then the camera looks away and looks back and suddenly the props are gigantic because they're giants. He throws the shield and it looks like, okay, that shield's kind of big. It cuts away. It comes back. It's like, okay, you guys could make like all three of you could make that a bed. Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's so cool. (laughs) Anyway. uh, So Spock takes up a position. Uh, Boma and Gatano are are now commanded to fire near the creatures. Um, Again, maybe use the stun setting guys. Yeah. I'm a little confused. Like what, what, what did you think this was going to accomplish? You could have just done some of them and that would have been fine. Now, what I loved about this scene though, is that both Boma and Gaetano get in their ready positions with their phasers drawn, (laughs) which is crouched down on one leg and the other one stretched out to the side. It totally like, they look like they're ready to dance battle and it looks so uncomfortable and so off balance. <laughs> anyway, so gets, they leave Gatano to be the guard. Cause they're pretty much Spock's like, yeah, we, we showed them, we showed them what our phasers could do. They won't be back. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, and then we switch back to Scotty and he's like, you know, I had an interesting idea. What if we use the phasers to energize the engines? Now, let me get this straight. So they're out of fuel. So they're going to use batteries to activate the fuel burning engines. Okay. That's a better explanation than I have. Cause I've been wondering about this. Cause when we have the, when the ending comes up, it was like, wait a second, what do phasers run on? Oh, th- this whole thing is weird. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Spock confiscates the yeoman and McCoy's phasers and is like, listen, Enterprise is going to be gone soon, so we got to try this out. So he gives their phasers to Scotty, keeping his own phaser, mind you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when they first started talking about this, though, I thought Scotty was talking about the shuttle's phasers. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. You know, you're going to re-divert power from one system to another system. That makes more sense. 
No, no. They were talking about jamming a handgun into the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Which if, if they're going to use what five of these, six of these to power the entire shuttle, it really makes me nervous about I'm holding one of those things in my hand. Right? (laughs) Well, I don't know. The, the technology in this episode is not super fantastic. I mean, Scotty integrates these into the, into the thing by putting it into the hole in the floor and he holds the woo, woo, woo thing up to his eye for a minute. And that somehow (laughs) integrates it. (laughs) Makes sense. Dude, that, that woo, woo, woo thing he uses. uh, It's so much fun. (laughs) There was earlier when they were all sitting around talking and he was the only one doing anything. He's on the floor and he's just got this thing held up to his eye the entire time (laughs) and everybody's moving around him and talking and he just keeps on looking through it. And I, all I can think is that, um, he, he, as an actor, he had to be sitting there like, can we please cut? This is ridiculous. Can we please cut the scene? Jimmy was a saint, man. (laughs) Anyway, I'm also guessing the little floor panel. We kind of know where, uh, Scotty keeps his, uh, Another oh, one of his yeah, uh, totally. sketches. I don't, I don't know why he didn't just fuel the ship with that. So back on the Enterprise, the transporters are working again. Kirk sends down landing parties. Okay. Here, here's the thing. You don't have sensors enough to find where these guys are at on the planet. Uh-huh. But you're just going to start beaming people down. Yeah, because you don't need sensors to know where you're going. <laughs> again, logical fallacies, man. <laughs> Sir, we we transported down all these boxes and filters, so it's clearly okay for people. It's going to work for people. Uh, Well, just a quick shout out to the uh, actor who played Transporter Transporter Chief David Ross, um, born in 1939 in Morocco. Uh, Not a lot of work in his profile, but he was in Rocky too. Cool. Um, he had four kids with his wife and he's still with us to this day. So if you're listening, David Ross, hi. Hi, David. Hi, David. Unfortunately, we flash back to Gaetano is surrounded. No wonder this guy was nervous because this dude just has no, I would like to know what his talent was or what his particular specialty was because guarding even his own life was not it. Right. I don't know. This guy was pretty bad at stuff. I mean, his, his entire scene turns into, ah, I was hitting the wrist with a rock. I'm going to climb. No, I'm tired of climbing. I guess I'm dead now. He, he, his hand gets hit by the rock. The phaser goes flying. He reaches for it. A spear comes and you know what? Okay. The spear comes. I still would have tried again for the phaser. Right. Oh, that spear fell over there. Well, he's only got one. I guess I can pick up the phaser now. Yes. No, instead, I'm going to try to climb up this styrofoam wall and then just act as if that effort just exhausted me. Well, and and he gets like two steps up the wall too. Like, it's not like he like climbed all day. (laughs) It was like, I'm going to reach once, reach twice. Oh, that's too much. (laughs) No, he's trapped against the wall and the giant ape thing is walking towards him. And I mean, walking, not. Dude, it totally reminds me of when my daughter was, you know, two and I was like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. He's just walking so slow. (laughs) So here's the thing. 
there's this thing they do in the show Doctor Who that might have worked here. It's called running. Oh, running. Oh, okay. For a second, I thought you meant a sonic screwdriver. Because <laughs> that would have worked too. It just kind of seems like, you know what, dude? I would be running. No, he's going to uh, look at the thing coming towards him and just watch it walk up to him and well, bend over. If you think about movies from the 40s to the 60s, it's kind of a common thing. Bad guy approaches, everybody goes, ah, and stands there looking through their outstretched hands. Like, did did it occur to you to like, I don't know, walk through the door, go away, go somewhere other than where this creature is. <laughs> oh, it's pointless. Right. <laughs> so this creature was played by a big old guy who is seven foot one by the name of Buck Maffey. Maffey? Maffey? Something of that Something nature. Something like that who was born in 1930 in Pittsburgh. So by this point, he's in his mid-30s, and he's 7'1". My God. Dang. Uh, he had occasional appearances and stuff. Um, this was th- th- this was the last kind of this job for quite a while. Uh, 1978, he did voice work for The Hobbit. Uh, 1981, his last credit was in Cheech and Chong's Nice Dreams. Which gives me an excuse to watch that movie again. I know, right? <laughs> uh, unfortunately he passed in 1982 in San Diego. Um, the, I, I personally love this scene. Everything about it is just crazy. The scale makes <laughs> no sense. They look over the giant shoulder. That dude is like 30 feet tall. <laughs> then he gets up close and attacks Gitano and he's, you know, maybe seven foot tall. And the, the spear is at least 20, I don't know, maybe 15 feet long. Yes. Like it's, it's pretty nuts. <laughs> uh, it's it's are, good stuff. It's, it's all, it's all the perspective of, you know, from where you're seeing it. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So when we see the guy attack Gaetano, we have to look at that guy. He's seven one. So he's probably rocking a, I don't know, size 17 foot, maybe size 18. So yeah. McCoy and Spock and Bulma see that Gaetano's gone. Spock tells McCoy to take Gatano's phaser back to Sc- back to Scotty. And then Spock gives McCoy his phaser and he starts walking to attempt to find Gatano. And it's about that time they look down and they see the footprint. <laughs> this footprint has got to be a size like 34. <laughs> it is massive. Does not match up whatsoever with what they just saw. And it also is like long and skinny, like a rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> super weird which we just dealt with the last episode and yeah right uh, i i love mccoy's whole thing on this because spock says i'm gonna go find Gatano's body and mccoy's like i just don't get it you know he's gonna break his neck trying to find Gatano, but even if he finds him he's just gonna order him to stay here so i just don't get it Right. At the okay, same time, but, if Spock had been like, I'm just going to leave him here. McCoy had been like that bastard. Yes. <laughs> McCoy, McCoy would have been very at home on Twitter. Amen. <laughs> right. Grumpy old man says stuff. <laughs> so Spock finds Gatano's body and is really annoyed by the fact <laughs> that Gatano's dead. <laughs> Damn humans littering everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> he he picks up the body and he just starts booking it past the, the shuttle while spears are being tossed at him the entire time. Oh, man. I'm guessing that these large ape creatures 
are some sort of vegetarian because the way that they throw spears, there's no way they're killing an animal and bringing it down. <laughs> I'll tell you what though, they throw it with some power because one of those spears goes right through a rock. <laughs> that was awesome. It's like right as it's going in a little bit of slow motion, that spear goes right into one of the, the rock set pieces and you can see styrofoam fly everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> It was so good. And it was both the spear and the rock broke. <laughs> so they get back inside the, the shuttle. Scotty's on the floor looking through the weird woo, woo, woo thing. And I keep waiting for him to look over at the yeoman and be like, I, I don't know what this does. <laughs> also, the windows are open now. When did they open the windows? How did they open the windows? Let's get some light in here. Right. <laughs> and then Boma pulls the whole thing of staring down Spock. Spock throws himself in the chair. Now this chair looks slightly different from the other chairs because this one actually looks kind of comfortable. Oh, dude. And- these chairs are just bizarre. Every <laughs> once in a while, somebody sits down in one and it's like, Ooh, that looks like a recliner. And then the next scene, it's like, that's going to dump you on your face. <laughs> now here's, I'm a little puzzled by this. McCoy blasts Spock because he goes, you know, you sh- you just uh, fired at them and tried to scare them off. And they came back. Okay, granted, but also let's remember when Latimer died, Gatano unloaded a lot of phaser energy on those dudes mm-hmm. and they still came back. Right. So there's absolutely no proof that killing a few of them would have made any difference whatsoever. But they are just so sure, no, you really should have killed those guys. You know, I, both Spock and McCoy at this point have used logic of, you know, this is how they're going to react because that's how creatures react. And it's yes. like, they're giants who stomp around going, <laughs> I don't think they're going to communicate the way you think they are. I, I just, you've, you've had a whole couple of hours to of exposure to these animals and you guys are just total experts on what they're going to do. Right. It's just weird. Anyway. So everybody's yelling at Spock and all of a sudden it shudders like crazy. Cause one of the creatures has, Oh wow. Followed them back and is hitting the, <laughs> the shuttle. <laughs> and I, I just love that Scotty is on the floor and he's just like, dun, 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 I got stuff to do. <laughs> I have to give him, he is focused. He's the only person this entire thing is actually focused on doing his job. You know why? Because engineers get stuff done. (laughs) (laughs) So Boma once again tears into Spock. And this time, Yeoman Mares gets in on the act. And Spock's like... We could use a little inspiration. uh, Spock's like, listen, I just, I don't get what's going wrong. I just don't understand. He needs that little meme of Captain Picard about, you know, you can still make all the right moves and still lose. That's not failure. That's life. God, it's just such a stupid scene. Spock is all frozen on a logic loop. Come on. <laughs> yeah, he takes this time to do something. It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, they came back and two people are dead and you guys are all pissed at me. You know, it's I like, really? Right now? It. Like, dude, <laughs> they're about to break down the wall. You need to like get your stuff together now. <laughs> so Spock is like, you know what? I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do. And Scotty's like, Hey, listen, it's going to be like another hour. 
And Bones is like, well, we don't have another hour. And Scotty's like, well, too bad, because that's how long it takes. <laughs> and at this point, you're figuring out, oh, Scotty ran out. Yeah, right? He out. <laughs> He's on the front edge of uh, withdrawal. Do you know how hard point. it is to fix a fuel system when your hands are shaking this bad? <laughs> <laughs> so back on the ship, sensors are starting to come back. Thank goodness. So Jim jumps on her as back. For reading him the last report, she's like, sir, here's what's going on. And he's like, shut up. <laughs> Tell me what's going on now. Right? Like, what is going on, man? And then Ferris pops in. He's like, hey, guess how much time is left? And we go, oh, that's what's going on. <laughs> now we get it. So Ahura is like, hey, um, uh, the sensors are still broken. Uh, we can't really get radio transmissions. You know, it's just all bad, <laughs> but we're beaming people down. Right <laughs> now. Then Kirk does do something great. He turns to Ferris and he says, get off my bridge. <laughs> he tells him, he tells him something effective, get your nose off my bridge, which I thought was an eh. odd choice of, and he does the whole, you know, it's at this point they're, they're doing the little peeing contest thing. Well, right. I'm in charge. And Ferris is like, yeah, for, you know, two more hours. Yeah. Right. For now. <laughs> I love that. He threatens to call the authorities. <laughs> and Kirk's like, you know, I'm the law here. <laughs> you know how I shot mud out of the sky. That's because I'm the law. And he wasn't even doing anything. He right. was just a J-class ship that I didn't like. I did that because he didn't file paperwork. <laughs> so Spock and Scotty decide to use the batteries to electrify the exterior of the hull. Which is way easier than it should be. Now, if you look closely, Scotty throws on his, uh, his anti-electricity gloves. And he goes back to do some stuff with the battery. But if you look closely, the middle finger of one of those gloves is just flapping in the breeze because there's no <laughs> finger inside it. Just a little Jimmy Doohan right there. Lots so of D-Day. He puts a socket wrench across both posts of a car battery <laughs> That's just and just starts rocking it back and forth. And it's like, <laughs> which I want to point out, he never actually touches any of this to the hull of the ship. Yeah, I was a little confused by this as well. It's like, you guys could at least put a wire that looked like it was going to the hole or right. something of this nature. Something, because somebody watching this show has experienced electricity before. <laughs> but he does this, and it, it makes a really cool show. I, I do want to point out, though, that I get the feeling from watching this scene that James Doohan actually was rattling a wrench across a car battery for this shot. Yeah, I... <laughs> that... I got the same feeling and I thought, Oh man, that's a little right. Like the expectations of actors in the sixties were a little (laughs) different than they are now. Anyway. So, um, the downside is, is that this battery, we got to stop doing this or we're not going to be able to use it for ignition. (laughs) It's the starter. (laughs) Again, if the batteries cause ignition in the engines, which are fueled, by phaser batteries like Um, unless we've had it wrong the entire time and phasers actually run on some sort of liquid that's what's in the handle they're they're all they've all got little butane containers in them yeah the entire ship runs on butane there you go i don't think any of these writers has ever seen anything remotely engine like (laughs) 
So Spock's I sell like phaser and phaser accessories. <laughs> <laughs> so Spock's like, hey, let's find anything we can throw out of this ship so we can get up in the air, including Gaetano. <laughs> Which I mean, poetically, he was gonna do anyway. Right. Even if he hadn't been dead, he was gonna throw him out. I just love the way he says it because he totally does pause. Just like, um, <laughs> yeah, and the dead guy too. <laughs> so Boma's like, well, we should bury him. Dude. There are giants beating <laughs> on the outside of the ship and you want to walk outside and dig a hole. <laughs> so yeah, Boma finally just goes over the line, even for McCoy and Scotty. Cause he tells him, he tells uh, uh, Spock, you know, even if it was you dead, I would still want to bury you. And McCoy's like, Whoa. And then Boma's like, I'm sick and tired of this machine. And Scotty's just like, Whoa, dude. Right. No, no, we're not doing this. <laughs> yeah. Scotty's face shows he is clearly done with this dude. And it's just like, we've got stuff to do. <laughs> it was like, and again, this is a dude who has a hard time with the concept of you have a commanding officer. You're not going to draw lots, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so Spock's like, you know what? You want to bury him? Go for it. You step outside. If you can survive, you, uh, you're great. Go for it. I don't care. I, which equates to fine. I need to lighten the load anyway. Load anyway. So go outside. Do whatever. I wash my hands of you and whatever you want to do out there. You you go ahead. You bury him. We'll stay here. Right. We we won't take off without you. Hey, uh, I'm just going to say, I hope they're vegetarian. (laughs) So landing party two beams back to the ship after being attacked by creatures to which I say, run away. (laughs) Also, if you can beam them down, why not beam up the other guys? We we just don't know where they're at. Well, how did you beam up those other dudes then? Right now, uh, um, Kellowitz, Kellowitz, Kellowitz. Yeah. He says he spoke to astral anthropology, <laughs> which I'm thinking, should that be exoanthropology? Cause astral anthropology sounds like something from Dr. Strange. You Maybe know, it's, it's the, like- the study of how stars behave. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are we next to this? Like, and then we checked our horoscope and it said that we had <laughs> a new opportunity today. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, they, they describe these guys and they're like, you know, they're about 10 to 12 feet tall. They're similar life forms on Hanson's planet. Okay. I assume um, named after the band Hanson. <laughs> oh, you mean planet Mbop? <laughs> <laughs> but these guys are tall. <laughs> so they, they wanted to get out of there, but unfortunately one of their guys got a spear in the back. Um, that was, uh, Ensign O'Neill. Interesting <laughs> side note. Uh, Ensign O'Neill is actually the first mention of an ensign on the TV show. Oh, nice yeah. get. Um, anyway, so, so the, uh, go ahead. so Kellowitz, uh, the guy telling us about this, um, he's portrayed by an actor named Grant Woods. And if you live in Arizona, no, not that Grant Woods. Um, this dude was born in Colorado, Colorado in 1932 as Earl Grant Titsworth. Yep, I would have changed it to Grant Woods too. <laughs> He's also sometimes credited as Grant Lockwood. Um, entered Hollywood as a stuntman after a stint in the Navy. He will actually be in This Side of Paradise and the episode Arena as well, so he will trek and trek again. Nice. 
And unfortunately, he passed away in 1968 in a tragic motorcycle accident in New York City. Oh, um, that sucks. So this is one that Star Trek was one of his last jobs ever. That's unfortunate. Indeed. Uh, well, to cheer us all up, here comes Ferris. <laughs> I'm putting into action Article 15. God, I hate it when people do that. Kirk says, uh, the Columbus still has to dock, so I got to recall all my search parties. And here <laughs> we can see really closely that Ahura's uh, tunic has shrunk. Yes. Uh, she she turns away from camera and you're like, oh, yeah, that's not working <laughs> at all anymore. And it suddenly makes perfect sense why she's been hunched over the entire time. She's trying to keep it all in there. <laughs> and breathe at the same time. Yeah, right? <laughs> Ugh. So the, the shuttle on the planet is finally ready to go, but they've only got enough energy that they can orbit for a few hours. And so Spock's like, hey, Boma, McCoy, you get 10 more minutes to bury Gatano, and we're out of here. <laughs> and I mean, if by bury you mean toss him out, I'm sure they've got time. But no, the next scene, they show a giant mound outside. And I'm like, that is not a 10-minute hole, guys. I know. It's like, well, you don't have a phaser to dig a hole with so what are you using to bury these guys with and how are you going to do it in 10 minutes right anyway so the enterprise breaks orbit because it's you know that time and kirk's like let's get out of here let's go at space normal speed (laughs) and and school goes space normal captain because that's not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, look at his face. Like, um, okay. <laughs> this is one of those double red alert things. You, you, say, you just can't throw words out there. You got to tell me what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're the one who named him Galactic Commissioner. <laughs> so the creatures show up to interrupt Gaetano's funeral. And Spock is like, Boma, McCoy, get in the shuttle. And then Spock grabs one of the spears <laughs> and hucks it back at them. Okay, in he all fairness. He specifically makes a point of doing that. In, in all fairness, we know that Vulcans are stronger than humans, so maybe, <laughs> I guess. Um, and then they throw a boulder at him and Spock gets trapped. And it, you can tell he's really trapped because he is holding that boulder up and holding it against his arm. <laughs> it's so good. And he, he's leaning against the rock and the rock is squishing in where he's leaning against it. He's holding this very clearly giant piece of styrofoam against his arm. Boma and McCoy come back to help him. They pick it up and the way that they're holding it is real awkward because they're trying not to make it look like it's styrofoam. It's so much fun. Spock the entire time like, no, go back. Don't, don't, don't. So Scotty tries to lift off, but the creatures are holding the ship and it's like, (laughs) and Spock's like, you know what? We just got to burn it all. And so he uses the boosters to get up. Scotty's like, no, my whiskey. So everybody's happy. They're like, yay, we got off the ground. And Spock's like, yeah, don't be happy. We're about to die. (laughs) Spock does the Debbie Downer thing right Right? away. (laughs) (laughs) now my favorite thing about it though is the ship kind of bucks and moves a little bit like it's moving up and all of a sudden ensign mares slides off of her seat onto her knees like 
like a little kid with who's on their knees and their butts completely flat on the floor. It was so weird. Such a strange She's just acting. So choice. excited. Yeah. And just and she spends the rest of the scene like that. Just flopped on the floor, looking around. And I can't honestly tell if it was like, I don't know what to do now, or if it was like, I'm on camera. <laughs> I, I took know. it that she basically wanted to be able to see out the window. The, the window's like four <laughs> feet above her head now. <laughs> I wasn't saying it was a good idea. Yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> She's like, we're going to space. I'm going to look straight up. <laughs> so Spock is like, Boma, McCoy, how dare you come get me? And they're like, um, okay, jerk. Like, yes, but we're of a higher moral standard than you are, Spock, so give us this give us these few moments of moral superiority right before we all burn up and die well okay so this is where the original series has it over tng tng they'd have been like well i don't know what our options are but we'll figure something out scotty's like we're gonna go around this rock once and then we're gonna burn up and die (laughs) oh and after that we'll crash And they're like, well, I don't want to die up here. It's It's like, well, it's better to like burn up than get hit by a, by a spear. Right. And Bone was just like, oh, I like how you get to make that decision. Oh yeah. It's like, dude, even now he's just a whiny jerk. That's just all it is. (laughs) And McCoy is like, well, so ends your first command. Like, dude, seriously. (laughs) And Spock's like, yeah, my first command. Right. (laughs) I don't know. Just wait, man. Even with no memory, I'm going to steal a whale. (laughs) So Scotty's like, I think we've got about 45 minutes and then we all die. And Spock's like, you know what? It's time for my beer. I can do that in six. (laughs) (laughs) If it's going to be 45 minutes, let's just get this over with. I'm going to push this button. And they zoom in on the console and there is literally a button that says jettison fuel. And it's it's important to have that one up front, dude. It is a little flippy switch that's just right there. All you got to do is just reach out and click, and it's in a position that looks like if you were like getting in the seat wrong, you could accidentally clip it with your knee. I I gotta I gotta imagine that the uh, the shuttle bay on the Enterprise, the the floor, (laughs) it's got this slick of fuel on it at all times from people accidentally hitting that button because it's also right next to the door. <laughs> all right, we're gonna go down to Rigel and we're gonna have a little fun today. Oh, nuts! We spilled all the fuel again. Oh, we'll have to go tomorrow. Get them off. <laughs> There's two crewmen. It's like every single time. <laughs> so we go back to the Enterprise, and Sulu spots the fuel burn, and he turns the ship around. He's like, "Sir, sir, look at that." <laughs> Now, this was actually kind of cool, though. The camera was looking over the top of the helm and looking down at all the panels. And it did this slow pan across the panel that was so cool. You could see all their switches and dials and buttons. It was real neat. Yeah, because the dude doing the navigating, man, he was hitting buttons like crazy. Yeah, he was. It was and so then cool. Sulu was just rocking one back and forth. Right. He's like, what is that thing? It's the- <laughs> and Scotty's like, wait a sec. 
you were sending out a flare, weren't you? And Spock's like, yeah, uh, yeah, that's totally what I was doing. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> that's what I meant. I, I meant to do that. Right. And Sp- Scotty's I like, thought- well, you know, <laughs> it was a good try. And then they start falling into the atmosphere. <laughs> I, I didn't think that switch was for the headlights. Right. I, I, no, that's, I meant to actually. <laughs> so the shuttle starts, starts to burn up in the atmosphere and suddenly the crew is beamed out to safety. Dun, dun, dun. And, and of course, McCoy is giving him crap again. <laughs> Um, and I am going to point out five came back. That is true. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't count. I got to be honest. Uh, damn it. <laughs> um, what I did like too, is as they pan around the, sh- the shuttle right before everybody th- thinking they're going to die, everybody is pensive. <laughs> nobody's freaked out. Nobody's scared. Nobody's upset. They're just pensive. Cause that's how real men burn alive. <laughs> so, up on the bridge, they're like, Captain, we've beamed something up. We're not entirely sure what it is. How do you not know what you beamed up? <laughs> and then when they do tell him, five, alive and well. And right? Kirk smiles, but he doesn't ask, oh, wait, who? Right? Who Which five? five? <laughs> well, no, because that would be rude. But he's just going <laughs> to ignore the fact that two didn't. Hey, more than half came back. That's pretty good for us. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) So they get back to the bridge and everybody's settling in and they all start just beating on Spock. Like, hey, Spock, why'd you dump the fuel? Spock's like, well, it was the most logical thing to do to keep us all from dying. And they're like, are you sure it was logic? (laughs) This is the worst ending. Oh my God. Any of them. The la- the laughter is awful. The the oh. joke itself is awful. Well, I it's mean, not even a joke. Star Trek. Right? You know. It's just like nanny nanny. You were emotional because you didn't want to die. <laughs> Nobody wants to die. That's not emotion. That's just I don't want to die. And then yeah, the laughter. They all they do this like you know we're about to do an eighties freeze frame laughter. <laughs> I kept waiting for, for Shatner to grab his belly as he was laughing. Oh, ho, 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 ho. Oh God. It was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. For a really good episode, it was a really awful ending. (laughs) The, the best though was in the back of the room as they're about to fade to black. You can see Scotty back there and his fake laugh is totally, I am pushing down the pain. (laughs) <laughs> just oh my god i almost died ha, 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 ha. i need to drink i almost got eaten by apes and then burnt up uh anyway i don't want so to do with this anymore that is the galileo seven all right uh we give this one a lot of crap but it is fun it is funny yes <laughs> it's super weird the way that everybody reacts is just bizarre but it's a great episode Lots of, lots of, uh, uh, suspense. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it, as a, especially when I was first watching Star Trek as a kid, this was one of my favorites. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Big caveman a, coming after you to eat you. You know, that's a. Yeah. Any, anytime that it's going to be a, a big bad guy about to eat you and throw spears at you, that's going to make for <laughs> some good TV as a kid. <laughs> anyway. Well, uh, join us next time. We're going to check out the Squire of Golfos. Or as my girlfriend dubbed it, what's with Liberace being alive in space? 
Oh man, that's good stuff. My only problem is that ain't Liberace. That's Q, baby. This is this is the second episode that my 13-year-old daughter said, Dad, can you please wait to watch this one with me? And I'm not sure why, because she knows nothing about the episode, but I can't wait to see her reaction. That's awesome. Anyway, uh, I'd also like to give a nice shout out to our friends over at Five Year Mission for the use of their song Beam Down as our intro and outro. Thank you. Please make sure to check them out on their website, fiveyearmission.net. They have a song for each episode of the original series grouped into albums for each season. Uh, You can find their stuff on their website, uh, or you can also find it on Apple Music and Spotify as well. Uh, So definitely check them out. It's really good stuff. And please feel free to stop by and drop us a line. We are No Seatbelts on the Bridge on Twitter, Blue Sky, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find our archive of always free episodes all at www.noseatbeltspod.com. Thank you much, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. 832, 2016.